a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm joined by Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com as we take another uh, take another little discussion of uh, what it's like to live and adjust to living in clown world. Eric, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good. I'm getting ready to uh, take a drink from the creek rather than the toilet. Okay, that's going to need some explanation here. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you probably know, today's election day in Virginia. We're going to elect a replacement for the coon man. And the choice isn't particularly palatable. We've got the rhino Republican Glenn Youngkin. But on the other hand, we've got the Clinton apparatchik Terry McAuliffe. And so I liken that to drinking out of the dirty creek versus drinking out of the toilet. Uh, And that's what I'm going to go do after we get off the air. Yeah. So, uh, okay. first of all, I congratulate you for not falling into the trap that, uh, oh, yeah, one of these people is definitely, you know, there to save you. But uh, what is the atmosphere right now? What's it like in, in Virginia? Is this is this a uh, very divisive race, or is it just business as usual? Well, it's definitely divisive, but what's interesting is that Youngkin had previously been considered to have absolutely no chance of uh, replacing the coon man. McAuliffe was considered a shoe-in. Now, apparently, according to all the metrics and all the polls, it's a very close race, and it's actually possible, apparently, that Youngkin could pull it off, uh, which would be nothing shy of a miracle. And I think it's because uh, of the fact that the authoritarian woke left has become so out of control, so cognitively dissonant, that they don't even realize how insane they sound, even to moderate Democrats. There was a big kerfluffle up in Loudoun County, which is a big county up in northern Virginia, um, over this transgender stuff. The, the school board there had imposed a policy whereby confused boys could go into the girls' bathroom. Well, one of these confused boys ended up raping not one, but two actual girls in the bathroom, and the school board attempted to cover that up. And that story broke, and uh, it ties to McAuliffe because he had gone on record previously saying that parents should have absolutely no role in determining what goes on in the schools where their kids are being so-called taught. And that didn't play well, even among people in northern Virginia, because even if you're a Democrat, it doesn't mean you're insane. And there are a lot of people up there who are very troubled by the idea of their teenage daughters having to go to the bathroom uh, with teenage boys who identify as girls. That's just one issue, but there's several others like it uh, that have, I think, uh, made this race much tighter than it was just a couple of months ago. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, how, how the woke have, have become a caricature of themselves. And the mm-hmm. question that pops into my mind is, at what point will, will people, if there, if there are still such a thing as normal people left, will they stand up and say, you know what, this is too far? Because we've been pushed to limits that I never would yeah. have believed possible. Well, I think that's just it. And, and what I mean by that is that this is not a mass movement. This woke leftist thing is a minority movement, just as in Russia. Uh, the hardcore communists who appropriated the title of Bolshevik, which in Russian means majority, when they were a minority, they were the loudest, the most belligerent, and they shouted down the Mensheviks, who were the actual majority, the generally reasonable Russians, or at least not insane Russians. And I think that's the same phenomenon here. And I think that reasonable people who generally just don't want a conflict, aren't looking for trouble, 
have kowtowed to this. And it's not just the school stuff. It's the face diapering. It's the vaccination. It's all this stuff. And I think our patience has finally worn thin and we've had enough of it. And I, I see a big pushback happening. At least I hope so. And I guess we're going to find out today because the race in Virginia is really going to be a barometer of the political uh, mood and sense of the country. Okay, so I want to ask you a pretty loaded question, Eric. Mm-hmm. How much difference does voting actually make, in your opinion? Well, it depends on the race, and it depends on whether it is a national election, a, a senatorial election, a congressional election, or a local election. Local elections can make a very big difference, indeed. You can have a lot of influence over what goes on in your town, for example, or at least a whole lot more influence just by dint of the fact that in a small-town election, you may only have a few thousand people voting, and then your vote might really be all the difference, as opposed to one vote out of hundreds of thousands or millions in a national-level election. Uh, It's a difficult issue for people like me who are libertarians and who dislike this whole thing about people's rights being up for a vote. You know, there's an argument that you shouldn't vote at all given that, you know, given that the, the whole thing is, as H.L. Mencken put it, a kind of advance auction of stolen goods right. and of rights. However, I think you can make a pretty persuasive case that it's okay to vote to protect rights. And if the person that you vote for, if, you know, voting for him to protect rights ends up doing something contrary to that, that's on him. It's not on you. You're, t- you're attempting to protect rights, not just your own, but those of other people. I think that's a valid argument, and it's, um, it's a rearguard fighting action, too, if you will, to preserve what we can of civilization and then rebuild it. You know, we can't rebuild civilization as well if it gets destroyed first. I'm hoping that we can avoid that. No, that, that makes sense. Um, I saw a distinction the other day that was so good. I want to share this one with you. This was from Anthony Davies from the Words and Numbers podcast, mm-hmm. and he said the market is people doing things with one another, whereas uh, the government or governance is people doing things to one another. I yes. thought that was a pretty cool distinction. It's absolutely apt. You know, uh, the, the core tenet of libertarianism is voluntary association, free markets, free exchange, meaning people interact with one another peacefully. You know, they exchange value for value. They have discussions. They don't fight. If they disagree, they agree to disagree, and they, they part ways and do their own things. It's, it's a fundamentally humane way to organize life. And the interesting thing is uh, it's, it's often characterized as, as naive and, and, and uh, um, uh, utopian, but it's not because if you think about it, in everyday life, just our ordinary transactions, it's very much that. You know, there aren't any rules per se governing how we talk to our friends and how we deal with our families and, and all of these other personal and intimate things that we do kind of freestyle, you know, based on, on voluntarism. You know, you don't, your friends aren't forced to interact with you. They choose to interact with you and vice versa. And for the most part, it's the same with our families. And that sort of thing can certainly scale. And I think it's infinitely preferable to this, this top-down pyramid where people at the apex simply decree and tell everybody else what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. Right. And and I don't know, maybe I'm just jaded, but I don't think I'm alone in this. Politicians are so um, comfortable with lying to the public. Uh, and and that to me, that that's enough to make me want to run screaming in the other direction. I'd rather deal with used sure. car salesmen all day long than deal with politicians. <laughs> well, they have to lie because the whole thing is a fundamentally dishonest business, isn't it? At least the way it's structured right now, because, again, we're getting back to this problem of people's goods and rights being up for a vote. It's an insane concept when you think about it, that you can just walk into this this building and pull a lever 
and have your neighbor uh, divested of his property, his money taken away from him, his rights taken away from him. It's, it's also a way to evade the, the moral culpability for what you do. Um, most of us who aren't psychopaths would not march over to our neighbor's house with a gun on our hip and say, you owe me X, Y, Z, and you know, threaten to harm them if they refuse to open up their purse or wallet and give you money. But these same people, who aren't necessarily bad people, will vote to have that done by proxy, and they won't feel bad about it. It's a striking thing. Wow. Well, I give you extra points for, for bringing up Mencken. And I encourage anybody who hasn't read H.L. Mencken probably should get a little dose of him if they just want to reconnect with reality. That guy had a gift. He did. Uh, he was brilliant at dissecting the fatuities of American political, political life. And his notes on democracy is arguably his best work on that. And if, if people listening to this haven't read it, I recommend that they do. So I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with, with his life, but um, can you tell me, was, was Mencken celebrated as a voice of reason in his time, or was, uh, was he uh, kind of marginalized by the people of his day? Well, both. He was one of the preeminent journalists of his time, the 1920s and 30s chiefly, and he was extraordinarily popular for a long time. But then along came the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt, and uh, he was largely shut up and, and put into pariah status as a result of that. He actually feared being persecuted, literally, politically, um, for some of his views and some of his crit- criticisms of FDR and the New Deal. So he sort of uh, faded away uh, off the stage. But uh, his fame has never entirely extinguished, much like other people of a piece with him philosophically, such as Henry David Thoreau and Lysander Spooner, and there are a number of others like that who are fairly well known to this day, and the knowledge of them uh, is increasing because what they had to say transcends their time and applies to our time as much as theirs. Boy, that sounds like a classic definition of wisdom. It doesn't become obsolete just because the times change. It remains true in pretty much any time and place. Yeah, what I learned from Mencken, and I began reading him as a very young man back in high school, was to be very precise with words and to not let, uh, if, you're in an, if you're in an argument with somebody, an ideological opponent, to not let them get away with defining words in a way that is disadvantageous to you, to make it clear what is being talked about. So, for example, people will euphemize things. You know, they'll talk about contributions to social security that's not a contribution that's a tax and you're being compelled you're being compelled to pay it you know that sort of thing that's what i learned from Mencken. okay hold that thought we're going to come back we're talking with eric peters from epautos.com there is a link in the show notes if you'd like to visit his site we'll be right back this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I like to uh, talk to Eric each week just because, Eric, you're, you're, kind of, uh, you're one of my last connections, my lifeline to uh, reality uh, because, because of your I, I take on not. stuff. <laughs> I hope you got more than just me. Uh, well, let's just say you're one of the primary lifelines. And this is why I wanted to ask you about the, the phenomenon that is sweeping the nation right now, the chanting mm-hmm. at major sporting events um, that uh, we'll just call it Let's Go Brandon. Yes. Uh, seems to be catching on. What's your take on this? Well, it's wonderful. You know, it is a, 
it is a it is a, a very American way to uh, to show contempt for authoritarian politicians. It, it refers to Biden, of course. And uh, for those who are not aware of its genesis, what happened was there was a NASCAR race, and it was won by a driver named Brandon something or other. I can't remember the guy's name. And he was being interviewed afterward by, I think it was an MSNBC journalist. And in the background, you could hear the deafening chant of the entire crowd that had assembled to watch the race saying, you know, basically, F. Joe Biden. And this reporter deliberately tried to uh, to claim that they were they were instead chanting, let's go, Brandon, you know, to cheer the driver. And the, the, the driver didn't say anything, but you could tell he thought it was as ridiculous as the, as the rest of the people viewing. And it since has taken off. And it has become a wonderful way to, without using profanity, express your contempt for the current regime. Well, let's let's talk for a minute about uh, about the essential role that mockery can play in resisting authoritarianism or just outright tyranny. Well, sure. If you can make authoritarian appear ridiculous, it loses its power. If you can point out its fatuities and and just laugh at it, it's very hard to maintain tyranny when it's the the butt of a of a joke. And that is why these authoritarians react so violently to anything that appears to make them look ridiculous. They can't stand it, and that is why the woke left is absolutely apoplectic about this let's go Brandon thing, because it is helping to delegitimize the current regime. They, they're, they're freaking out over it. Well, I, I love the power of laughter, but I especially love the power of laughter to, to put the oh-so-important in their place. Well, me too. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, this is this is a funny thing. Let's go, Brandon. I mean, come on. That's you know, that's not a that's not an injunction to commit violence. That's not a threat. It's simply an expression of contempt. Right. Mm -hmm. These same people who are in outrage over people expressing contempt for Biden and the regime are the same ones who are doing things like uh, showing severed pumpkin heads of Donald Trump and holding knives and doing things that were really close to the line of advocating actual violence at, at people who supported Trump or who didn't support the left. These same people now somehow are perfectly okay uh, you know, with advocating that those who say, let's go Brandon, are somehow insurrectionists and dangerous and they need to be shut down. And it just makes the left look even more ridiculous in many people's eyes than it already looks, which is pretty ridiculous. Well, in my experience, too, the people who react most violently or negatively to mocking are people who know at some level they deserve to be mocked. Sure. You know, if you can't have a, self, a sense of humor about yourself and your own foibles and failings, you really need to have a, a, a do a psychological inventory of yourself. Uh, if you view yourself as, as a perfect avatar of absolute perfection that, uh, that cannot be criticized, you've got, you got a defect, you've got an issue. You know? And these people on the left uh, who can't stand anything that, that isn't, isn't a deference of, of extreme seriousness toward them because they're oh so important, uh, it tells you that they're fragile. And ironically, these are the same people who accuse us of being, oh, what's the term that they use? Uh, there's a term that I can't think of it. Uh, brittleness or, I, gosh, I wish I could pull it out of my head, fragility? but I can't. <laughs> yeah, it is, I think it is fragility. And, and they're the ones that are fragile. They're the ones who can't stand diversity in any meaningful sense. What they want is Easter egg diversity. They want, you know, different colors, let's say, uh, or different genitalia. But they want uniformity when it comes to what people think and what they believe. Everybody's got to be the same as long as they look slightly different, then it's okay.
Yeah, I, I can't imagine an existence where where I'm so keyed up about what other people think that I cannot even allow myself to laugh or to smile. Well, true, and it, me, me also. And the other thing that defines these people on the left is it's that they can't stand that other people are going to have different views and want to force other views on their views on these other people. You and I don't have a problem with difference of opinion because we're content to let other people express their own opinions. I haven't got a problem with that. I haven't got a problem with people wearing a mask if they want to wear a mask. That should be their choice. It's the same with the vaccine. If they want to take it, that's fine. There's no conflict there. There should, doesn't need to be a conflict. But on the other side, on their side, there is a conflict because it's not enough for them to wear the mask or to get the jab. They expect us. They're going to try to force us to wear the mask and take the jab, and that's the nut of the problem. Uh, what was the? I, I saw a. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Zuby, Z U B Y. Have you have you followed this guy, this musician Zuby, on Twitter? No, I'm completely not hip. I hate to admit it. Okay, the only reason I mention it is because this guy actually has a really solid take on a lot of stuff, and a tweet that he sent out recently. Uh, said something to the effect of, I feel like the past 20 months have largely consisted of people trying to convince me to be as afraid as they are and them getting mm-hmm. mad at me for refusing to be. Exactly. He's so right. That is well said. That is apt. Exactly right. I mean, I feel, I feel very bad. I feel compassion for people who are afraid. You know, I'd like for them to not feel afraid. But I refuse to feel afraid because somebody else is afraid. And uh, I certainly am not going to, to behave in a manner that suggests that I'm afraid because some other person is afraid. Right. Well, I, I appreciate uh, those who are, are willing to um, even suffer, you know, indignity and suffer injustice for the sake of, of uh, not giving in. Um, for instance, uh, I, know, I saw a picture yesterday of a very long line of New York City police officers lined up yeah. to fill out their paperwork because they will not mm-hmm. be reporting to work this morning uh, because they've been told, look, if you aren't vaccinated, mm-hmm. you know, you can't work. So they're calling in yep. sick. I watched uh, two videos, one of a doctor and one of a nurse, who were being escorted out of the hospital where they worked by armed guards because they had refused to um, provide proof of jab. Think about that. These people were willing to put their careers, their educations, everything they had put into that on the line for the sake of a principle. More than that, actually, it's because they're, they're genuinely concerned about the physical harm that could come to them as well as to other people, which trumps any job at the end of the day. And I think that's why so many people are beginning to say, no, I will not do this. And, you know, it's, it is an important principle, but when your life potentially is on the line, potentially the life of your child, uh, no amount of money is worth that. And you can't believe the amount of pressure, unless unless you're one of those people in that position. You know, for, for those of us who aren't being pressured, you, know, you either do this or you lose your job. There's also the enticement side. Uh, I've got a 15-year-old or 16-year-old son who uh, works part-time for an FDA. Um, it's an FDA position, but uh, they're telling him, you need to be jabbed by the 22nd of this month or mm-hmm. you can't work. Now they're telling him, hey, we'll pay you 500 bucks. Now, for a 16-year-old, that's a pretty princely sum. Yes, it is. And consider, though, what that implies and how desperate they are. When somebody's trying to pay you to do something, that kind of sets off a red flag for me. It's, again, like this whole timeshare thing where they entice you with, oh, you know, you'll get to stay at this nice resort for free, and there'll be a buffet dinner at the end of it, right? 
there's something wrong with this picture. If something is desirable and, 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 and genuinely in the interest of the person that's being offered it, they'll look at it and say, yeah, you know what, that, that seems like a good deal to me. I think I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I'll, I'll, I'll go for that. Well, I admire everybody who is standing firm, and Eric, you are one of those voices that I turn to for the reasons why I should stand firm, as well as an example of how to do it. Tell everybody where they can find your website and what to expect when they get there. Sure. It's epautos.com. I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site, and uh, we cover all sorts of eclectic things, including the stuff that you and I talk about, but also new cars, which I get to test drive and review regularly motorcycles, classic cars, practically anything that you can think about, uh, we, we, we talk about over at epautos.com. Okay, some really intelligent conversation in the comments, too. Uh, that's something you don't find everywhere, so take advantage of it. Eric, thanks so much for being my guest. As always, Brian, thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, want to send some love in the direction of lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my great sponsors. I've got a lot of great sponsors, and if you look at the show notes, you'll find a little special section there with links to take you to each and every one of them. Love these guys, though, because, uh, well, let's just face it. Uh, food storage is a great idea, especially food storage with a nice 25-year shelf life. It's not like, well, you know, I'm never going to eat food. At some point, I'm just going to be tired of eating. No, you're, you're always, at least as long as you're processing oxygen, you're going to need sustenance. As you see prices of food going up at the grocery store, as you see breakdowns in the supply chain, I'm not trying to spread fear here, but I am trying to point out there's some uncertainty in things that we have taken for granted in the past. So, might be wise to have some of this on hand. The sooner you get started on a food storage program, or the, the more consistent you are at building up and maintaining an existing food storage program, the better you're going to sleep at night. So click on the link, see what life-saving food has to offer. Keep in mind there are some delays because of the breakdowns in, in uh, shipping and in the supply chain, but uh, they'll get it to you as quick as possible. Prices are still quite decent. I say that, knock on wood, compared to, to where they seem to be heading. And, of course, uh, again, it's, it's about the peace of mind. It's, it's you're preparing for life, not for the apocalypse. So here's a question for you. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, unique patient identifier before. I don't think I've ever heard that specific phrase, but I'm I'm always a little bit on edge whenever there's anything that approaches the idea that, you know what would be great? If we could just make your identity something that government grants to you, and, you know, that's how you uh, move through society. Having just flown in the last couple of weeks, this is kind of fresh on my mind because... You know, the my wife found out the hard way when we moved. Uh, she got her she got her Idaho driver's license, and apparently, in Idaho, if you want the gold star, which is signifies that you are part of the real ID, in other words, the approved driver's license that's acceptable for the federal government, you have to ask for it. It's not just a given. 
It's funny. Living in Utah, Utah actually sent me my Gold Star driver's license. I didn't even have to ask for it. It just showed up in the mail. What the heck is this? Get rid of your old license and carry this one around. Okay, well, here we go. But have you ever thought about where that leads? When your identity is a government-granted privilege as opposed to an essential part of who you are, independent of what government says. I mean, it's kind of chilling, right? It's it's the logical extension of papers, please. You know, um, you aren't who you think you are unless the government agrees that you're who you say you are. Now combine that potential for authoritarianism with medicine. Ooh, this could be a real problem. And Dr. Ron Paul, or Representative Ron Paul, if you prefer, has a great piece on LewRockwell.com, Resist the Unique Patient Identifier. Now, he doesn't waste any time throwing the cards on the table here. He says, look, if people who torture animals are psychopaths, then what are government officials who use taxpayer dollars to fund animal torture? He says many, <clears throat> many are asking this question in the wake of the revelations of the, that the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, high priest of the COVID cult, funded medical, and this word is in, in quotation marks, research involving the torture of puppies. This led uh, Fire Fauci to trend on Twitter and people for the ethical treatment of animals to call for his resignation. Now, the puppy torture story was followed by disclosures that the federal government funded the testing of experimental AIDS vaccines on orphans. Many of the orphans used as human guinea pigs subsequently died. And nurses who assisted in these experiments reported that many children got sick immediately after receiving the vaccines. So, testing dangerous drugs on orphans and torturing puppies in the name of science. Ron Paul says that's certainly shocking, but is it really surprising that government would fund these kinds of activities? What's the difference between using orphans and puppies for cruel experiments in the name of protecting public health versus killing innocent children in drone attacks in the name of stopping terrorism? He is swinging for the fences here and connecting. Now, Ron Paul says, ironically, these revelations come when Congress is on the verge of allowing the federal bureaucracy to destroy what remains of our medical privacy. Both the Senate and House versions of the Labor, Education, and Health and Human Services Appropriations Bill remove the prohibition on the development of what is called a unique patient identifier. Now, Ron Paul says the prohibition on funding for the unique patient identifier, which I sponsored, this was a piece of his legislation, has been in place since 1998. It's the prohibition he sponsored. Just want to make that clear. What? He came up with this? No. He says the push to allow the government to force every American to obtain a unique patient identifier is being justified as a means to efficiently monitor Americans' contact and immunization status. He says, when I began fighting the unique patient ID in the 1990s, my opponents denied that medical identifiers would make it impossible to ensure confidentiality of medical records. Now they're saying we should support medical identifiers because they allow government officials and employers, schools, airlines, even stores and restaurants to discover what, if any, vaccinations or other medical treatments we have or have not received. You can see where this is going, right? The result of the identifier will be a medical caste system where those who refuse to follow the mandates or the advice of experts are denied opportunities to work 
receive an education, or even go to church or enjoy a night out on the town. He says a unique patient identifier will weaken health care by making individuals reluctant to share personal information, such as drug and alcohol use and past sexual history with health care providers. It will also discourage sick individuals from seeking medical care for fear their physicians will discover they're unvaccinated or they smoke or they're overweight or engage in other unapproved behaviors. Ron Paul says a unique medical ID could also be tied to government records of gun purchases. Someone with too many guns could be labeled a potential mental health risk and harassed by law enforcement. And he points out that's especially likely if the gun grabbers are successful in their push to enact red flag laws in every state. Now, here's the good news. He says, fortunately, there is a growing resistance to vaccines and other mandates. And this resistance is unlikely to passively accept a federally issued patient identifier. If those of us who know the truth take advantage of the opportunity presented by the resistance to COVID tyranny... He says we can not only stop the scheme to force every American to obtain a unique patient identifier, but end all government control of our health care. I've got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll take the time to read it for yourself. And, you know, I'm not telling you, boy, Ron Paul said it. and You better believe it, man. But this guy has a really consistent track record of being on the right side, as in the principled side of the, the contest between freedom and tyranny. And just so we don't lose sight of, you know, what's going on, that's really what the choice is in front of us. Will you choose freedom? Will you choose tyranny? We'll actually talk about this in in the next hour. It's a crazy time, isn't it? I saw something earlier today, too, that I thought was really fascinating. In fact, I want to see if I can pull this up because I want to get it uh, word for word. Uh, This was uh, shared by Eric Mutsos. And I just was, I was blown away by how accurate this is. Let me just look here real quick. I just got to see where activity history. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Facebook, you don't make things very easy, do you? All right. Well, let me pull it up here. Eric Mutsos wrote, uh, wrote a thing about how you can tell that uh, this is it has anyone noticed the majority of people fighting for their freedoms are openly and publicly trusting in god but on the flip side most of those bowing down against their conscience their own conscience are believing government will ultimately save them and he says such is a testimony where humanity's faith will finally rest we can't have both when good and evil have finally been revealed it's all a test and he says we must all decide where we stand god or government now, I know that's going to make some people feel uncomfortable, especially if you're if you're agnostic or if you're an atheist or just simply someone who says, I don't know. I don't know. But for people of faith, I would submit to you this is one of the key tests. And it's it's not something you go out and, and, and take part in in you know, like a voting block. OK, do we all vote? We, we believe God will you know ultimately run this universe or that, you know, we're going to hand that power over to some politician. This is a very individual thing. So I'm trying hard not to step on anybody's toes here, but I will say Eric's right. And what he has observed here, I think, is absolutely correct. The people who seem to be fighting the hardest to preserve not just their own freedom, but the freedom of every person. 
are relying upon faith in God. You know the crazy thing? I think historically this has always been the case because I think historically all the battles that have ever been fought are still rooted in that ultimate battle that began in heaven. Will you be free to choose or must you be forced? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to throw a quick plug out there for my show notes. Every day I sit down and I look for good, credible, hopefully principled information, by which I mean it's not rooted in red state versus blue state rhetoric. And that's what I share in my show notes. And I put some personal annotations in there, but basically I spend my time compiling the best information I can find that accurately reflects what's going on in the world as well as empowers you and me to recognize what's happening and what we can do within our respective spheres of influence. It's also a handy-dandy feature for any uh, talk show hosts who don't feel like doing their own show prep. I publish it every single day at thebrianhydeshow.com. Here's something simple, though. If you don't have time, you know, for instance, if, you, if you're listening to me, you know, on your way to and fro, or uh, you, you don't have a, the kind of commute that would allow you to listen to this show in its entirety, not a problem. You can still read all the material. If you go to my website and subscribe, I will email my show notes out each day that I do my show. So it's just a little handy tool. You don't even have to agree with anything. You may just want to stay, you know, you may want to subscribe just so you can stay up on, well, you know, what's hide off on today. But I've got some pretty fascinating stuff. For instance, if the shipping crisis is on your mind, I found a very interesting piece by a veteran truck driver that provides some real insight into what's happening. Oh, sure, we could go to politicians and have them tell us what's happening, but I kind of want to hear from people who are actually in the trenches. I've long had the belief that if you want to, if you want to get the truth, you got to be willing to go to the source. Ryan Johnson's been a truck driver for 20 years. He explains exactly why America's shipping crisis will not be ending anytime soon. He says, I have a simple question for every expert who thinks they understand the root causes of the shipping crisis. The question is, why is there only one crane for every 50 to 100 trucks at every port in America? And he says, no expert will answer this question. Now, Ryan says, I'm a class A truck driver with experience in every, every, nearly every aspect of freight. My experience in the trucking industry of 20 years tells me that nothing is going to change in the shipping industry. So let's start with some understanding of a few things about ports. Outside of dedicated port trucking companies, most trucking companies won't touch shipping containers. And there's a reason for that. Think of going to the port as going to Black Mart or to Walmart, pff, hello, on Black Friday. But imagine only one cashier for thousands of customers. Think about the lines, except at a port, there are at least three lines in or three lines to get a container in or out. So the first line is the in gate where hundreds of trucks daily have to pass through five to ten available gates. The second line is where you're waiting to pick up your container. The third line is waiting to get out. Now, for each of these lines, the wait time is a minimum of an hour. In fact, he says, I've waited up to eight hours in the first line just to get into the port. And some ports are worse than others, but excessive wait times are not uncommon. 
He says, it's a rare day when a driver gets in and out in under two hours. And by rare day, he says, I mean maybe a handful of times a year. Ports don't even have enough workers to keep the, the, the ports fluid. And it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's coastal or inland port, union or non-union port, it's the same everywhere. Now, he says, furthermore, I'm fortunate enough to be a teamster, a union driver, an employee paid by the hour. Most port drivers are independent contractors, leased onto a carrier who's paying them by the load. So whether their load it takes two hours, 14 hours, or three days to complete, they get paid the same. And they have to pay 90% of their truck operating expenses. The carrier may pay the other 10%, but usually less. He says the rates paid to non-union drivers for shipping container transport are usually extremely low. In a majority of cases, these drivers don't come close to my union wages. Plus, they pay for all their own repairs and fuel and all truck-related expenses. He says, I honestly don't understand how many of them can even afford to show up for work. There's no guarantee of any wage, not even minimum wage. And in many cases, these drivers make far below minimum wage. In some cases, they work 70-hour weeks and they still end up owing money to their carrier. Oh, boy. So when the coastal ports started getting clogged up last spring due to the impacts of COVID on business everywhere, drivers started refusing to show up. And congestion got so bad that instead of being able to do three loads a day, they could only do one. They took a two-thirds pay cut and most of these drivers were working 12 hours a day or more. And while carriers were charging increased pandemic shipping rates, none of those rate increases went to driver wages. Well, what do you think happened? Many drivers simply quit. However, while the pickup rate for containers severely decreased, they were still being offloaded from the boats, and it's only gotten worse. Earlier this summer, both BNSF and Union Pacific Railways shut down their container yards in the Chicago area for a week for inbound containers. Now, these are some of the busiest ports in the country. He says they had miles upon miles of stack, meaning container trains, waiting to get in to be unloaded. According to BNSF, containers were sitting in the port one-third longer than usual, and they simply ran out of space to put them until some of the ones already on the ground had been picked up. Though they did reopen the area ports, they're still over capacity. Stack trains are still sitting, loaded, all over the country, waiting to get up into a port to unload. And they have to be unloaded. There's a finite number of rail cars, so equipment shortages are a large part of the problem. One of these critical shortages is what's called the container chassis. So the container chassis is the trailer that the container sits on. Cranes will load these in port. Chassis are typically container company provided as trucking companies generally don't have their own chassis units. They're essential for container trucking. And while there are some privately owned chassis, there aren't enough of those to begin to address the backlog of containers today. So drivers sitting around for hours, sometimes days, waiting for chassis. Now, the impact of the container crisis now hitting residencies in proximity to uh, is now hitting residencies in proximity to trucking companies. Containers are being pulled out of the port and dropped anywhere the drivers can find because the trucking company lots are full. Ports are desperate to get containers out so they can unload the new containers coming in by boat. When this happens, there's no plan to deliver this freight yet. They're literally just making room for the next ship at the port. He says this won't last long as it just compounds the shortage of chassis. Ports will eventually find themselves unable to move containers out of the port 
until sitting containers are delivered, emptied, returned, or taken to a storage lot, whether loaded or empty, and taken off the chassis there so the chassis can be put back into use. The priority isn't delivery. The priority is just to clear the port enough so that they can unload the next boat. So what happens when a container does get to a warehouse? Well, he says a large portion of international containers must be hand-unloaded because the products aren't on pallets. That takes a working crew a considerable amount of time to do this, and warehouse work is usually low-wage. A lot of it's only temporary staff. Many full-time warehouse workers got laid off when the pandemic started. They didn't come back. So warehouses, like everyone else, are chronically short-staffed. When the port trucker gets to the warehouse, they have to wait for a door. You've probably seen warehouse buildings with a bank of roll-up doors for trucks on one side of the building. The warehouses, meantime, are behind schedule. And he says sometimes by weeks. So after maybe a two-hour wait, the driver gets a door, drops the container, but now often has to pick up an empty and goes back to the port to wait in line all over again to drop off the empty. At the warehouse, the delivered freight is unloaded, and it's usually separated and bound to pallets, then shipped out in much smaller quantities to final destination. A container that had a couple dozen pallets of goods on it will go out on multiple trailers to multiple different destinations, a few pallets at a time. So he says, from personal experience, what used to take me 20 to 30 minutes to pick up at a warehouse can now take three to four hours. This slowdown is warehouse management related because very few warehouses are open 24 hours. And even if they are, many are so short-staffed, it doesn't make much difference because they're so far behind in schedule. It means that as a freight driver, I can't pick up as much freight in a day as I used to. And since I can't get as much freight on my truck, the whole supply chain is backed up. Freight simply isn't moving. So how do you convince truckers to work when their pay isn't guaranteed, even to the point where they are losing money? Now, there's a lot more to this article, and you can check it out for yourself in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, this is Ryan Johnson in a piece published on medium.com. But he says, look, there's no incentive for, for trucking companies to change this, even if it means consumers have to do holiday shopping in July and pay triple for their shipping. This is the new normal. All brought to you by the experts, in quotation marks, running our supply chains. I thought that was an interesting take, and it definitely shed some light on what's happening. Now, what's the solution? I don't know. But I think I'd start by talking to some of the people who are right there in the thick of things before I started turning to politicians and saying, hey, could you solve this for us? Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. Look, I believe the battle for your mind is real. 
I think there's a choice in front of every one of us today, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And I want to share with you the best information that I can to assist you in your choice, not to make the choice for you, but to give you some options to consider. And frankly, the legacy media ain't doing such a great job of telling you what's going on short of shut up and do what you're told. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you, think it through for yourself. You decide what's best and you choose what, uh, what makes the most sense as you make your way forward in life. That's not always easy. By the way, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and a new sponsor I want to welcome to the program, Govern Your Income. This is something that uh, I would encourage you to click on and check out. There's a special section for sponsor links right there in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I wanted to share something that I saw earlier today on Facebook. Um, I, I have only, I've never met Alina Erickson in person, but uh, uh, a number of the podcasts that I produce, uh, the hosts have interviewed her. And I got to say, she is a very impressive person. Very, very principled, walks the walk, doesn't just talk the talk. And she had a very thought-provoking post on Facebook. And if you have been feeling overwhelmed, oh, how can, I, how can I make things work in a world where it feels like everybody and their brother just wants to control me and tell me what to do? I want you to hear what Alina Erickson has to say. She says, I just finished listening to Candace Owens, and she was speaking about how essential it has become to get back to the basics of self-reliance. Do we know how to grow our own food? Do we know how to take care of our bodies with home remedies? Do we know how to pull from the educational institutions that are harming the next generation, or are we completely reliant on the government? And Alina Erickson says, well, I do, and I won't be. She says, for one, I've raised six children almost entirely to my own devices with a master's in herbalism. We rarely needed a doctor. I've homeschooled my six children, save the last few years. My last two sons at home, almost 16 and 17, are in a trade school. She says, I even delivered most of my children naturally and one at home. That was planned, by the way. She says, I've cooked from scratch using Whole Foods, ran a 10-acre homestead, milked cows, raised chickens, always managed a garden, and learned to preserve for a rainy day. The way I raised my children was considered to be outmoded. Each night we read classics, and each morning I held a spiritual devotional. The only entertainment we watched was one hour a day, and it was after chores and schoolwork was done. And we watched things that built character, like the Andy Griffith show, Little House on the Prairie, and Leave it to Beaver. I dedicated three hours a day to helping my three oldest daughters excel in music, violin, viola, and cello. They took state several times and studied pre-college at Jacob's School of Music. She says, my boys have done well in music, but they've chosen not to be as serious. In short, Alina Erickson says, I learned how much a family can get done when life is guided by inspiration and parent-driven. Whatever form of education or lifestyle you choose to lead, it should be driven by you as a parent. So she says, my message is to trust yourself in the promptings that come for your family. I've also learned the power of doing seemingly small things. Brings to mind the scripture, through small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. Now, Alina Erickson says these experiences were invaluable in shaping the core of developing young minds that would last a lifetime. Life was so simple, and yet it was the stuff strong families are built from. In fact, this is the kind of stuff strong nations were built on. Hard work, 
character-building stories, family time, worshiping, serving, education, and exploration for God's wonderful world and our purpose in it is the kind of stuff life is made from. Oh my goodness, that she is so right. But now we're finding ourselves, she says, in a whole new world with needing to find new ways of doing things and reverting back to simpler, older methods from bygone days. She says, I used to be scoffed at for the way I raised my children, but I didn't care. I knew in my heart I walked closely with God and took his counsel with how to raise his children. And now to see so many people choose to homeschool, to become more resourceful and innovative, that's exciting. We're getting back to the basics, and as we do so, we will come full circle to a full circle of the pillars that will strengthen our nation, God, family, and liberty. If you're not friends with her on Facebook or if you don't follow her on social media, I would say Alina Erickson is somebody that uh, is leading out in the right way. I want to check that out. I know for some people it's like, oh, well, it doesn't sound very sophisticated to me. You know, I've raised my kids in the real world. Trust me, that's the real world includes a lot of beauty. It includes faith. It includes, you know, those simple things. I don't know why, but, uh, you know, some, sometimes it seems like uh, people feel like, well, you know, unless, unless the show you're watching has really hardcore violence and lots of hardcore profanity and maybe some gratuitous sex or nudity, it's not real. It's just some fluffy representation of, of you know, fantasy. Leave it to Beaver, <laughs> Andy Griffith, you know. But I've had a very similar experience as, as I've sat with my kids and watched, you know, TV shows. Some of the shows we watch, you know, The Office and Parks and Recreation, they're purely just, you know, for entertainment. And they get pretty edgy from time to time. I would say they don't, uh, they don't necessarily represent the worldview that I would want my kids to grow up holding. We laugh, but uh, we're also being exposed to pretty much, you know, what's, what's going on in Babylon. On the other hand, when we sit down and we watch shows like Andy Griffith or the Beverly, Hill, the Beverly Hillbillies or something like that, Little House on the Prairie, we were really into that at one point. I used to joke around about how this is so boring, you know, this is, this is so goody two-shoes. But when you look a little bit closer, there was, uh, there was actually a good message there. It was still entertaining. People still laughed, but they didn't need the vulgarity. They didn't need the, the over-the-top you know, dialogue or suggestiveness. I know, I sound like the old guy who yells at clouds, but uh, if you step away from television for a while, and a lot of people have, and then you go back and you just sit down and put on a current sitcom, I think most people, I've certainly been in this case, have been in this situation where uh, I'm shocked. And it's not because I'm this delicate flower that's going to wilt at the, you know, the first hint of suggestive dialogue, but... Just the, the crassness, the, the uh, innuendo is just so pervasive. It's like whoever wrote this was writing it with one hand in their crotch because they, they just couldn't think of anything um, sophisticated enough to make people laugh without going for the most base kind of humor. Toilet humor, sexual humor, something, you know, politically correct. Everything's very woke now. Oh, what was the definition I saw yesterday? Oh, a reboot. Hey, we're going to reboot this uh, this series, which means we're going to make it worse and add diversity. <laughs> that seems like as accurate a description as I've seen. All right, rant over. Let's move on here. Uh, look, 
I saw some video the other day. Uh, oh, it was yesterday, actually, out of Australia. This was an Australian military officer interviewing with with someone. I don't know. I don't know the woman who was interviewing him, but he was a guest on her show, and he was talking about training that was being given to the Australian military. And look, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but. Australia is a great place to look for if you want to say, how bad could it get? How authoritarian could a first world nation get? What this guy had to say was pretty chilling because he said, what they are training us to do right now in the military is they are training us to go door to door and to physically remove people from their homes and forcibly vaccinate them if necessary, to chase them into the woods and capture them and vaccinate them if necessary. And in the middle of the interview, he, he just drops an F-bomb. Now, again, this was not just gratuitous, ooh, shock value. He's like, I'm really sorry, but you could tell he believed very strongly this is so wrong. Now, you can shrug and say, okay, Brian, that's Australia. That's not something that's likely to happen around here. And I just have to ask, are you sure? Because it seems to me that a lot of uh, nations look towards other nations as well. You know, uh, China handled this pretty well. Why don't we do what they did? Do you honestly believe, would you be willing to take the chance that uh, leaders here in the U.S. aren't looking at Australia and saying, you know, I think we could do that. Well, if we can get the American people to, uh, you know, give up their guns, which is what Australia did 25 years ago, or over the last 25 years, I should say. Hmm. Sending the military door-to-door to to forcibly vaccinate people? Gee, talk about an idea that's great. It's so great, we have to bring it to you and force you to be a part of it. Yep, that's always the sign of a good idea. Brought to you at Bayonet Point. All right, sarcasm off. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got a quick shout out here for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, at 619 South Bluff Street. Hey, if you're in the market for a home and you are anywhere within the state of Utah, these are the folks I think you should talk to. Heather has decades of experience and the stability and the clout of Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need without delay. Why does that matter? Well, it's because it's the hottest real estate market ever. Well, I don't know if it's the hottest ever, but it's it's pretty sporty right now. And homes don't stay on the market very long. So you find one that you like, you got to have your financing squared away. And from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to make it happen in a timely fashion. Did I mention the competition's real fierce? You know, people snapping those homes up quickly. Yeah, that's why you want to do it quickly. Call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, in America, it feels like COVID tyranny has kind of plateaued. I mean, there's still, uh, there's still, was it American Airlines had to cancel a bunch of flights over the weekend uh, due to staff shortages and weather? 
I'm putting these in quotation marks. Okay. Yeah, it has nothing to do with any mandates. Uh, I saw a picture of the line of uh, police officers in New York uh, City. It was a long line, by the way, of officers who will be calling in sick today because they will not take the vaccine. They've shut down 26 fire companies in New York City because they're not staffed. And and the funny thing is people are being, you know, they're blaming all these cops and these firemen. They're selfish. How dare they not do what's in the best interest of the public? That's a really tough position to be in. I mean, because we're talking about the same people who, without hesitation, 20 years ago were charging into the burning World Trade Center buildings. But boy, you don't do what the vaxxers want, and you are a bad, selfish person. I mean, at what point is it okay to stand up for your own individual health? And there was a really interesting exchange on Twitter. I don't know if you're familiar with Zuby, Z-U-B-Y. He is a a musician, I, I guess a rapper. I've never heard one of his songs. I love the guy's philosophy, though. On Twitter, he is one of those people. He's one of the reasons why I go back to Twitter, even though, you know, there's there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of anger and angst and just toxicity. But it's not coming from him. So he's one of the reasons that I stick around because you, you find people who have a, a truly insightful take on what's going on. And Zuby had made the comment uh, that, you know, why would you stick around with an employer who doesn't even value your humanity? And this may sting for some people, and I'm sorry if this is putting you on the spot. You know, I'm I'm not trying to tell you, boy, you're a sucker for working for some corporation that says you have to get the vaccine or else. But employment is a voluntary contract, right? I mean, nobody conscripted you. Nobody marched you in there at gunpoint and said, you're going to work here now. So why do so many people cling to that? Oh, but I I couldn't find another job if I tried. And, and I get it. It's looking for work is, is always going to be a little bit scary. There's a, there's a chance, you know, if you're above a certain age, well, I don't know if anybody would hire me. But I like the comment that Zuby made, and he says, hey, why would you work for that employer who doesn't even value your human rights and your humanity? Now, maybe they're getting pressure from above. I suspect that's the case for most. But his point still stands. And someone says, well, what are they supposed to do? Huh? What's their choice? They, they have to have a job. And this was the response that Zuby gave as he says, well, uh, you know, if, if you're looking for employment, maybe you should be looking at self-employment. Someone had pointed out, well, you know, traditionally, if you're looking for stable employment and, you know, a job that's going to be there always, you know, you would want to go into education or science or medicine or uh, like be a pilot, but all of these things take some pretty extensive training, but that's where, you know, that's where you have job security. And Zuby says, uh, actually, I think uh, if you want real job security, what you need to be is self-employed with multiple sources of income. Now, that got my attention because that's, uh, that's exactly the situation that uh, I have been able to, to put myself into in the last year and a half. And I'm not telling you you're bad if you work for somebody else. Some people are very happy with their jobs, but the employee mindset is something that I don't know if it's necessarily the healthiest mindset. And and let me explain what I mean here. It's not like it's disgraceful to work for someone else. I know I can sound like Karl Marx. You know, you're being exploited. 
You workers, come on, let's unite. It's not a matter of, uh, you know, that you're being exploited by the capitalists. It's a matter of the mindset that I need somebody to hire me. I need somebody to provide me with work. It's somebody else's responsibility to have a position where I can work and collect a regular paycheck. That's a pretty comfortable existence, right? You get those regular paychecks coming. Hey, they may have a nice 401k and, you know, some nice benefits, company, car, the whole nine yards. Again, this is not like it's a dishonorable thing. But that mindset still has you dependent on someone else to provide. Now, think about the mindset of the entrepreneur, the person who is self-employed. It's a very different uh, way of approaching things. Because it puts the responsibility right back on your shoulders. And it's, I'll admit, for all the years that I've been in, in broadcast, you know, I've, I've spent the vast majority of that time as an employee. And to step out to be an independent contractor was really uncomfortable. Or I would have done it a lot sooner. But something I didn't expect when I finally took that step was I did not realize that I had been wearing a leash all along. And when that leash came off, you know, there was a certain amount of risk that came with it. Okay, the steady paycheck, ooh, it's not there. That means I'm going to have to work smarter and harder. And truth be told, I'm working longer hours than I've ever worked before, but I'm also accomplishing more than I have ever done before. So the trade-off is if you can handle being a little bit uncomfortable, You can actually run faster. You can go farther. You can do more than you could just strictly within the confines of whatever that position is that pays you regularly and that, uh, you know, keeps you employed. I'm not going to suggest this is for everybody, but the idea of being self-employed with multiple sources of income makes you less susceptible to mandates less susceptible to demands that others might place on you. And I'm thinking this might be a good time for for those who've been sitting on the fence trying to decide what can I do, what can I do. The opportunities are there. Okay, the technology is there. It used to be that if you wanted to have a good quality broadcast experience, well, the only place that that was going to happen was sitting in a very high-dollar, professionally-designed studio. Even if you wanted to build a home studio, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you were still looking to lay out $20,000 if you wanted to do it right. That's not the case now. And I'm not suggesting that uh, the only solution is to work from home, but when you have the opportunity to use technology in your favor, maybe it's worth uh, thinking outside the box and just poking around and seeing, what could I do? I'm a big fan of the idea of uh, what are called uh, mini factories or basically a little cottage industry that you do at your home. The beauty of this is you can teach your children how to build something, how to create value for others, because really that's what it comes down to. A job isn't just, yeah, show up and collect a paycheck and push this paper from here over to here, you know, from time to time. What you're being paid for either as self-employed or uh, by an employer, is because you are creating value for them. You learn how to create that value for other people yourself, and you can become an independent contractor. So use your imagination. 
Something tells me this is going to be more important than ever in the days ahead. Might as well take the chance. You know, step around and enjoy the discomfort. It gets better. Much, much better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's jump in here. You know, Dr. Joseph Mercola, I have seen his articles for years and years on lourockwell.com. And yeah, Lou Rockwell is one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. Has been for, good heavens, 20, 25 years. It's been a long time. I started reading Lou Rockwell back in the early days of the Internet. And it's it's a wonderful news aggregator and, and commentary aggregator site. And Dr. Joseph Mercola has been right there at the forefront. Now, he's kind of been persona non grata in a lot of traditional uh, media settings because he has been pushing back hard against a lot of the COVID tyranny. But he has an article that I am including in today's show notes that I think is worth your time, at least worth your consideration. It's titled, The Only Choice Left, Slavery or Freedom. And Dr. Mercola says, typically my conversations with experts about the COVID pandemic revolve around the infection and its treatment. But he did an interview with finance guru Catherine Austin Fitz and tackled the COVID topic from a different angle. And there's actually a link. It's about an hour long interview that he did with her. Now, he says Austin Fitz has spent decades exposing corruption and fraud, both within the banking industry and the government. And corruption and fraud are driving forces in the COVID pandemic as well. Catherine Austin Fitz said, I had a very successful career on Wall Street, went to Washington briefly and was appalled at the mortgage corruption and left. So she says, I started my own firm, which was very successful, and I got caught up in litigation with the federal government. Now, part of that was due to discovering what a criminal enterprise the major media was. I decided that uh, during that period that I would just stop trying to discuss anything with people through the media. I would just answer people's questions directly. That process of just constantly answering people's questions turned into two businesses, one of which was an investment advisory business started in 2007. She says, I discovered that many of the financial problems and many of the financial challenges that my clients were facing really were generated by health, including many of them from vaccine injury and vaccine adverse events. She says, I'm no longer an investment advisor. I don't do individual investment advice. But what I discovered was that it was absolutely imperative if you wanted to help clients be successful at building family wealth to integrate the investment in health and wellness with the investment in financial things. She says, I would have people tell me they put millions of dollars into their brokerage account but couldn't afford organic or biodynamic food. And she was like, I'm, are you crazy? There was an, So there was this integration that had to happen, and because of the extraordinary expense of vaccine injury and adverse events, she says, it got me very interested in vaccines, and I spent many years reading and studying what was going on and why the lies were so bad. Now, Dr. Mercola says, according to Austin Fitz, your health and your personal finances cannot be separated. They really are like two sides of the same coin, and families who don't learn to navigate through the lies of the medical and finance industries can end up in very bad shape, both health-wise and financially. 
It's a pretty in-depth article, but uh, I, I love, I'm just going to cut to the chase here where he says there's just one choice that remains, slavery or freedom. He spells out how this planned control system is being implemented bit by bit, steadily and consistently, and urges that uh, don't be a part of that. He says to prevent the final implementation of this planned control system, we must be ready and willing to sacrifice in the short term. Isn't this what we're seeing today? Right? The people who would rather walk off the job or quit their job or resign from their job or allow themselves to be fired rather than submit to getting the, the shot. Dr. Mercola says everyone must be willing to say, no, I will not comply, no matter what the consequence. Whether you take away my pension, if you fire me, if you discredit me, if I can never work again in my profession, that's what it's going to take to keep even our most basic freedoms. So if we get to, for instance, COVID passports, he says, then I would argue as a practical matter, we lose our ability to stop the central bank digital currencies. So whatever we do, we need to stop the passports. The passports give them the kind of control they need of the digital and financial transactions that leads into deeper control. In fact, let's just call it. This is, this is what Catherine Austin Fitz calls it slavery. It's slavery or freedom. Look at what they're planning what they're shooting for. It's a complete financial and technological control grid. That is slavery. I mean, when the World Economic Forum says it's 2030 and you have no assets, what is it about that that's not clear? You have no assets means you are a slave. Crazy, huh? I don't think it is, but you know, I, I think they're, they're right on the money. So I would recommend... Take a look at this article from Dr. Joseph Mercola. I think he makes a very strong case with the help of this Catherine Austin Fitz that vaccine passports create a platform for a digital transaction system that will document and track all transactions. Once combined with a central bank controlled digital currency, well, that would mean that uh, those in control would have the ability to block transactions. So if your government doesn't want you to purchase anything more than five miles from your home, they have the ability to prevent you from doing so. If they don't want you buying pizzas, they can stop you from buying pizza. So what can you do? Okay, this is probably the question that would come to most people's minds. Okay, how can I resist this diabolical plan? Dr. Mercola says one strategy would be to move to a state or a country that has made vaccine passport requirements illegal. Another strategy is to simply refuse the passport, no matter what the ramifications and this goes for those who've gotten one or two COVID jabs as well. To maintain a valid passport, you'll have to take boosters. So how many are you willing to take? How many times are you willing to risk your health and life? He says at some point you'll have to make the same decision as everyone else who is unvaccinated. Freedom or slavery. And what this means is we'll need to create alternate and parallel systems for everything we'll be denied access to if we don't have a valid vaccine passport. That includes education, food production, services of various kinds, health care, and economy. And these parallel systems are going to be crucial anyway, as the U.S. entitlement program, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. They look like they're going to be out of money by 2028. That's not that far away. And as these programs vanish, they'll take the drug industry down with them because 
They are the drug industry's primary resource, uh, uh, primary revenue resource. So I'll leave this for you. Um, he goes into who's behind it all. He goes into the, the vaccine mandates and signs of positive change. But there's no doubt about it. We, we have some difficult trails to travel. And I think one of the best things that we can do at this point is help each other, be kind to one another, you know, be the best version of yourself that you can be. Okay, anger alone is not enough to, to, to get you where we need to go. And I don't think any one of us is going to be spared. You know, I, I have really enjoyed being a preparedness-minded individual for a long time. And I take it as a great compliment. You know, when I'm somewhere and the power goes out and people are like, oh my gosh, the power's out. Who has a light? And people who know me turn to me, Brian. And, you know, <laughs> with a smile, I'm like, sure, yep. I've got I've got an alternate source of light because it's just a habit. It feels good to be able to meet those unexpected circumstances and to to, you know, have solutions at hand because you were thinking ahead. But having said that, with what is coming economically, culturally, politically, I don't think we're going to be able to to do this in a completely painless fashion. You know, just like you, I've, I have felt the pain of uh, the isolation and uh, the uncertainty of all the COVID response and the lockdowns and everything. I get it too. It's discouraging. It, uh, it, it wears on me. But it's so great to have options. And more than anything, I encourage this kind of self-reliance, not because, you know, uh, the end is coming and we should all be hunkered down with a rifle in our hands and, you know, just uh, waiting for the, the fire and brimstone to start falling from the sky. I think it's more a matter of uh, we just, we have to be as prepared as we can be, but still willing to rely on God. Again, I go back to what Eric Mutsos uh, was, was talking about on Facebook about you really can see a divide. The people who are fighting the hardest for freedom typically are people with faith in God as opposed to faith in government. So be one of those people, and I think it's going to go quite well for us, even if it's hard. This is where we can learn to help each other. We can work our way through and, uh, and do what needs to be done. Check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I think you're going to find a lot of worthwhile material there for you, as well as you'll find some connections to my sponsors who are marvelous, each in their own right. Check out lifesavingfood.com. Great place to start your food storage program or build on your existing program. And they'll even throw in a nice 20% discount for you if you use HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as the coupon code at checkout. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. I've been a little wordy today. Not unlike my usual quiet self, who just sits here for two hours, nodding thoughtfully. Occasionally clearing my throat. <laughs> anyway, I've got two great articles that I want to share a couple of excerpts from. Uh, first one is from Victor Davis Hansen, 
And, it, you know, it's about the ignoble lie. And I point this out only because by now it should be clear that almost everyone in authority is not ashamed to lie to us when it's for our own good. And it's really sad that people go along with it. Well, you know, Dr. Fauci said this, and I, I trust him. I think he's a good, I have his action figure. No. Anytime someone in authority tells you a lie for your own good, you can be pretty certain that whatever they're telling you is being said for the advantage of whoever is in power. It's in their interest. Victor Davis Hanson talks about in a controversial passage in Plato's Republic, Socrates introduced the idea of the noble lie. A majestic fiction, he says, could sometimes serve society by persuading uninformed citizens of something good for them. And ever since, many prevaricators have used the excuse that they lied for the common good. Take Dr. Anthony Fauci, our point man on the COVID-19 epidemic. Fauci said he misled the country about mask wearing during the pandemic by claiming they were of little use. But he argued that he lied in order that the public not make a run on masks, deplete the supply, and thus rob medical professionals of protective equipment. Fauci also told noble lies about the likely percentage of the public needing to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. And he kept raising the bar from 60 to 70 percent to 75 to 80 percent to 85 percent. Apparently, Fauci feared a lower figure, even if accurate, might lull people into complacency about getting inoculated. He also lied about his own role in routing U.S. aid money to subsidize gain-of-function viral research at the Wuhan Virology Lab, the likely birthplace of COVID-19. Now, either Fauci was hiding his own culpability or he believed the American people might not be able to fully accept that some of their own health officials were promoting the sort of research that was partially responsible for more than 700,000 American deaths. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has serially lied about the number of illegal immigrants who've crossed into the United States. He falsely claimed mounted agents were whipping migrants. He fibbed about the purported lack of federal data of apprehensions, detentions, and deportations. His assertion that the, that the border was secure was a joke. And apparently Mayorkas believed that the public would go ballistic or his own administration would be roundly despised if he told the bitter truth about the border. By intent, the Biden administration has deliberately left it wide open and it will likely allow 2 million illegal immigrants into the country in the current fiscal year. Lots of other unelected federal officials serially lied over the past five years by claiming or implying that harming the Trump administration was in the public interest. Former FBI directors Andrew McCabe and James Comey likely serially misled the nation. McCabe admittedly lied that he did not leak FBI information to the media. James Comey, on over 240 occasions while under oath in congressional cross-examinations, claimed he did not know or could not remember basic facts about his own role in promoting the Russian collusion hoax. Apparently, Comey and McCabe believed that by being less than truthful, they might better emasculate Donald Trump, and that result would be beneficial to America. Our former intelligence leaders may have been the most brazen liars. Former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper admittedly lied to Congress. When caught in the untruth, Clapper reverted to the noble lie that he gave the least untruthful answer, apparently on the pretense that he didn't want to damage the reputation of an important intelligence agency. Ditto for John Brennan, former head of the CIA. 
On two occasions, he lied under oath about the agency's monitoring of Senate staffers' computers and the deaths of civilians caused by the U.S. drone assassination missions along the Afghan border. Chairman of Joint Chiefs uh, Mark Milley lied for days about the details of an accidental drone strike that killed innocent women and children in Afghanistan. And either Milley is now lying when he says he warned Joe Biden about the disasters to come in Afghanistan, or Biden is lying when he denies hearing any such advice. And the list goes on and on and on. Special counsel Robert Mueller told a whopper under oath, claiming to know almost nothing about the Steele dossier and the misadventures of Fusion GPS. Both were two catalysts that prompted his entire investigation of collusion in the first place. In some of these cases, when caught and exposed, the liars will hedge by claiming temporary amnesia. Sometimes they'll admit they lied, but they'll suggest they did so for higher purposes, like national security. But Victor Davis Hanson says, in truth, in most cases, there was nothing noble at all in their lying. They simply spread untruths to protect their own endangered careers by masking their own wrongdoing or fobbing it onto others. In other words, noble lies are rarely spun for anyone's interests other than those of the liars themselves. That's a beautiful, beautiful way of persuading you that Don't take anything a politician says very seriously. Even if you really like that politician, be skeptical. All right, one final article, and this is one that uh, I I hope you will take the time to read. One of the biggest stories that we're not hearing about in most legacy media sources is how the ongoing centralization of power is resulting in a remarkable transfer of wealth from the middle class to the elites. Carol Roth, writing for the Brownstone Institute, explains why this is as historical as it is immoral. She says, recent history is punctuated with a lot of not-so-great economic greats from the Great Depression to the Great Recession. Now we have a new one. When historians look back on the decisions made beginning in March 2020 and still going strong, this period will be remembered as the Great Consolidation that is the acceleration of a historic wealth transfer and power concentration out of the hands of the middle class and into those with political power and connections. The connected form a powerful block comprised of big government, big business, and big special interests. And though their monikers label them big, they are comprised of relatively small elites. And they're seeking to use their power to benefit themselves at your expense. For instance, prior to COVID, more than 30 million small businesses accounted for about half the GDP and jobs in America. The other half of the economy was concentrated in 20,000 big companies. So you might have expected that small businesses would have an equal amount of negotiating power when the pandemic hit, as big companies do. But you'd be wrong. Big companies have more lobbying dollars and more connections, so they have more ability to play the political game. Their big pockets are balanced with a small enough scope to make them a government ally compared to the highly decentralized small business landscape. We all remember what happened, right? Big firms were deemed essential. They were allowed to stay open during the pandemic, while small businesses were subjected to punishing lockdown orders and forced to close in part or completely. Many of the examples were doubly infuriating given the absurd hypocrisies they represent. For example, big-box pet retailers like PetSmart that groomed pet hair and nails were deemed essential, while salons owned by small business owners that served humans were not. 
The L.A. area Pineapple Hill Saloon and Grill was forced to close their outdoor dining while a movie production not only operated but hosted a catering tent serving food to the crew in the same parking lot the restaurant had been forced to abandon. Weed dispensaries, illegal just a handful of years ago in many jurisdictions, suddenly were deemed essential. And the results of this are fairly easy to follow. Spending that couldn't be done at closed businesses was shifted to those that were open, which were, by and large, big businesses, many of which naturally saw a substantial increase in their revenue. I'm just going to skip to the chase here because we're down to the last minute here. Carol Roth says... Consolidation of the economy only benefits those who are in the club, meaning that that country club of government and big business. And even though it will likely destroy prosperity, the power hungry often don't care. Big business benefits from the decimation of competition. Special interests benefit from favors granted by big government and big government benefits by having those powerful consolidated allies to keep its purpose and purview growing. And I would add to that, they also become kind of de facto enforcers for government uh, mandates that the government itself has no legit authority to push. So Carol Roth says the only antidote is decentralization, which means supporting small businesses and the middle class through smaller government and the removal of barriers to wealth creation. I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Worth reading her articles. Worth subscribing, actually, to brownstone.org. You'll find a lot of great economic information as well as some of the best COVID-related information out there today. So, that said, what are you doing today to strengthen your position as not only an individual, but also as a family, as a community of faith, as a community, period. You have influence that you may gravely underestimate. I suggest think about the influence that you have and use it wisely wherever you're standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.